In uttering these words, I have just set a record. And the record I have set is that I have now managed two Bible studies in a row where I didn't start it by saying, right. <laughs> I didn't last week and I haven't tonight. Right. Oh. <laughs> 1 Kings 1 Kings chapter 17 <coughs> and our second in the uh, this series on a uh, Elijah. Now, what we saw last time in our introduction, I gave all the rules for, you know, sort of Old Testament typology and stuff like that. We went all through that. Um, and we looked at the historical background, you know, to the ministry of Elijah, etc., etc. And, uh, and what we saw, basically, uh, is that, that, that in, in this story of the life, well, hardly life of Elijah, because it doesn't span very long at all, but in the story of Elijah, that we have a parallel, a very strong parallel, with what the Lord is seeking to do today in His church. We saw that in Elijah's time, God's people were out of fellowship with God. They were in disobedience to the Lord's revealed word. Remember, even what they did have of the scriptures, they were going against and disregarding, and they were in a right old mess. Now, that parallel works out in a threefold way. First of all, we're going to be seeing through this series that we have a parallel of the state and condition of God's people today, i.e. the church. Secondly, we're going to see that we've got a parallel with how God cleans that mess up, i.e. what it is he wants to do about the church. And then Thursday, thirdly, <laughs> we're going to be seeing how he prepares and deals with the people that he's going to use in the process of unmessing the mess that the church is in. Now, tonight we're going to be on um, 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. As you can see, we're going to be rattling through this at a right old rate, alright, today just the first verse, alright. So let's, let's, let's read it. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, let's 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 have a look at the first part of that. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, Can you see suddenly, I mean right through the Old Testament up to 1 Kings 17 verse 1 no sign of anyone called Elijah and here in 17 verse 1 bang Elijah the Tishbite can you see he appears he comes onto the scene from absolutely nowhere he just appears and uh, in God's time now he goes into action and how oh boy are we gonna see how Elijah goes into action. Now let's let's just look at uh, what little we can gather from his background. Um, I mean basically we know nothing at all really of Elijah's previous life. Uh, he just bang appears on the scene at this point. Um, but what we do know, in fact the only thing we know about him, is that he came 
from a place called, called Tishbe in the region of Gilead. That is the only bit of information that the Bible gives to us. He came from Tishbe, which was in the region of Gilead. Now, let's, let's deal with Tishbe. Well, the truth is, Tishbe is long gone. This little place called Tishbe was so insignificant, it was so totally unimportant, that the only reason we know it ever did exist is because here the Bible tells us it's where Elijah came from. And if it wasn't for this reference in the Bible, no one would even know that a place called Tishbe ever existed. That was how insignificant Elijah's hometown was. The Bible is the only book that mentions it at all. So what that tells us is that Elijah, as to his background, he, he, he came out of total obscurity and complete insignificance. That was his background. Now I just want you to note that for, for the moment. Elijah's previous background was that of complete obscurity and insignificance. Now Tishbe was in the region of Gilead. Now we know a bit more about Gilead. Uh, Gilead, which was kind of like, I mean, Tishbe in Gilead would be like saying Loughton in Essex, alright. And, uh, and Gilead uh, was east of Jordan and it was south of Bashan. So if you get a map of Israel out, east of Jordan, south of Bashan. So work that out for yourselves. Now, the way to think of Gilead is this, and I, I mean by this no insight, insult, the Scottish Highlands. If you think of the Scottish Highlands, you have got the region of Gilead in Israel down to a T. It was known as a wild and rugged and lonely region. It was the backwoods of Israel. It was literally the up north, alright? It was literally the up north and, you know, picture that, I mean, like in Great Britain, isn't it? Like the south, even in England, I mean, leave Scotland and Northern Ireland out of it for one moment, but even in England, you know, you've kind of got, you know, sort of south of Leeds, you've got the south, haven't you? The London and the home counties down at the south coast, all very, very important. But even in London, the further north you go, the more run down it gets, can you see? Now, that was Elijah's background. That was <coughs> where he came from, the region of Gilead. And life there would have been harsh. It would have been harsh. I mean, life in a, a, a cosmopolitan town in Israel, 2000, you know, sort of 4,000 years ago, would have been harsh compared to today. But my goodness, Gilead was harsh compared to the more cosmopolitan areas. So it really was kind of harsh, but life would have been simple and straightforward. And one of the things is that that region of Gilead would have been relatively uncontaminated by all the unfaithfulness and the idolatry of the more cosmopolitan areas of Israel. Can you see that? Very often you find in countries, if you head out into the sticks a bit, um, if you have got people who have always lived in the sticks, they tend to be a generation or so behind the cities. Now in some ways it can be good, in some ways it can be bad. But believe you me, if you move out into the sticks, even in this country, amongst people who have always lived in the more remote areas, you will find, for instance, a slightly higher morality than you get in the cities. Can you see? Because there's a contamination that goes on in cities merely by sheer force of numbers. So, in a sense, Elijah had come from an area 
where kind of the purity of the true faith had been maintained a bit better than it would have uh, been in the more cosmopolitan areas. And of course, it's no coincidence that Elijah came from such a background. Because Elijah, as we're going to be seeing, was representing the true faith of the Lord God of Israel, as opposed to the backsliding and the worldliness and idolatry of Israel at large. And also, we're going to be seeing that he walks a very harsh, a very rugged, and a very lonely walk before the Lord. And can you see how that fits in? Elijah, merely by where he was brought up his whole life, was being fitted for the task that God had prepared for him. Now, what we can see there quite clear is Elijah's past history, and this is exactly the same with you and I. Elijah's past history was quite intentionally arranged by God. Elijah's history, even down to where he was born, was no coincidence. Elijah's life was completely prearranged by God. His history was perfect for the work that God had called him to. Now, this is tremendously important for us to understand. You see, for us, the Lord doesn't just start messing with us <laughs> and arranging things when we start following him. Uh, a lot of Christians seem to think that when they get born again, now obviously the moment you're born again, the Lord actually comes into your life. He, he lives in you from that point onwards. But a lot of Christians seem to feel that the moment you're born again, that's when God starts having things to do with you. Well, that is completely uh, at variance with what the Bible teaches. You see, the Lord knew that you were going to follow him anyway, even before you were born. Just go to Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, Jeremiah, and find chapter 1. And in Jeremiah, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 4 and 5. <coughs> Jeremiah, chapter 1, and verse 4 and 5. Now this is Jeremiah himself writing. Look what he says. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born... I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, can you see? Here's Jeremiah, minding his own business, and the Lord appears to him and says, Oi, I want you for a prophet. But the Lord goes further and he says, In fact, this is why you were born. I knew you before you were even born. In fact, this is why. And he also says, Before you were born, I consecrated you. Now, there's something very interesting here. The moment you were born again, why was it that you were born again? Because you consecrated yourself to the Lord. To consecrate something means to commit for holy purposes, alright? So therefore, when we became Christians, we committed ourselves to the Lord. We consecrated ourselves to the Lord. Well, here's the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, and he's saying, Do you know why you did that? Because I consecrated you, I set you apart for holy things, before you were even born. You see? Tremendous. Now then you might say, oh yes, but Elijah and Jeremiah, Old Testament prophets, it was different then, wasn't it? And indeed, there are lots of things that were different for the Old Testament prophets, as we're going to see as we go through the story of Elijah. But if you go now to Galatians, 
and we're going to look at something to do with Paul the Apostle who of course was not an Old Testament prophet he was a New Testament Christian just like us and in Galatians and again chapter 1 Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 now this is Paul talking about his calling his ministry as a Christian the work the service that God called him to when he became a Christian now look what Paul the Apostle says but when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me and you see what Paul is saying there Paul is saying exactly the same as Jeremiah Paul had been set apart by God before he was even born and he says that God had called him through his grace now when did God call Paul before he was born not after he was born not when he became a Christian called him before he was even born now can you not see what this means in regards to our past what this means is for you and I our past our history is completely in the Lord's hands and indeed is part of God's preparation for our futures even our history before we were born again can you see that the Lord was fully in your life not from the point you got converted and there onwards the Lord was fully in our lives from the word go from the moment we were conceived in our mother's womb the Lord was working fully in our lives which means that our past no matter what it is even before we were Christians the Lord was fully involved with it and there are so many Christians who are not at peace with their past I maybe the past before they got converted maybe even the past since they became Christians um, they fear their pasts rather than seeing the Lord in their pasts now I, I suffered badly from that very thing for many many years as a Christian and for many years there was only one thing that prevented my past catching up with me and it was the speed at which I was running away from it easy and I was always waiting for past sin be it sin since I got converted or before I became a Christian I was always living in fear of my past catching up on me I really did it was confessed it was repented of it was forgiven but I lived in fear of it for years now even now I still get the odd twinge but I'll tell you having been in a very bad way with that for a number of years I can honestly say it is lovely now for some years to have been free of it I get the odd twinge here and there but my goodness how wonderful it is when the Lord sets you free from your fear of the past and what is the key to being free from the fear of your past catching up on you it's knowing that the Lord was there in your past he was there he was arranging it oh you can't blame the sin on him that was purely our doing but the Lord was there throughout our history 
from the moment that we were conceived in our mother's wombs. Go to John chapter 5 and there's a story about a healing that Jesus performed here. <coughs> and uh, there's something tremendously important. John chapter 5 and uh, we'll start reading from verse 2. The Gospel of John chapter 5 and verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which in Hebrew is called Beth Sava, which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralysed. Uh, in some version then it's got the bit about the angel coming down and stirring the waters and first one in got healed, which incidentally was merely a current local Jewish superstition. Bit, bit lordish, you know, like, like lords, alright? Um, now one man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Do you want to be healed? One might think, silly question. <laughs> but is it a silly question? I mean, take it, this guy, what's he been receiving his whole life? Charity. Quite right too, he couldn't work couldn't work, couldn't take responsibility, so he had therefore quite rightly been the responsibility of the others around him. Absolutely right. But what Jesus is saying is, do you want to be healed? Oh, if I heal you, there'll be no more charity. You will then be your own responsibility. Can you see what I mean? So, you know, just realise, it's great to say, oh, wow, you know, I'm going to be healed, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus said, do you want to go out and get a job? Are you willing for that? You know, you've been used to lying, lying down for all your life, being looked after by others. Are you willing to take the responsibility? That's why Jesus said, you want to be healed, obviously. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is troubled. It's the reference to the angel going in. Uh, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So, I mean, it's all, you know, sort of like, poor old me, blah, 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 blah. Couldn't have just said, yes, I want to be healed, could he? Because self-pity sticks, doesn't it? I mean, this, this, this guy had been feeling sorry for himself for 38 years, so, you know, sort of like, here's, here, here's Jesus. All right, Jesus, and he says, do you want to be healed? Now, I mean, the answer is yes or no, isn't it? What answer does he get? Oh, well, woe is me, and oh, it's ever so hard, and oh, goodness, you don't know what I've been through all these years. He didn't even hear the question. He's so used to just instantly pouring out his problems on everyone. You know, he didn't click the first time that Jesus was saying, do you want to be healed, you see? Anyway, eventually, you know, sort of like he obviously says yes. And, uh, and Jesus said, rise, take up your pallet or your bed. This was the mattress that he'd been lying on. Take up your pallet bed mattress, whichever version you prefer, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet bed mattress, whichever version you prefer, and walked. Now, there's something interesting here. This guy is diseased. We don't know what the disease is, but it's a disease that he's had for 38 years. So it might have been something he was born with, or it might have been something he contracted when he was a young man. Okay. Now, Jesus was going to heal him. Now, why didn't Jesus just say, get up and walk? What's this, pick up your bed and walk? Why that? Well, it's because at back of this, there's something else. I mean, this is a healing. But at back of it, it's a picture of something. Now, what is it a picture of? What is the greatest healing that ever takes place in anyone? It's the moment someone receives Jesus as their saviour. And they are spiritually healed, they're made whole, uh, their spirit is brought back to life by the Holy Spirit, they're made one with Jesus, alright? Now that's the greatest healing of all. You're heading then for heaven, heading for glory, alright? 
Now, the point is that here, Jesus says to the man, pick up the bed and walk. Now, what did his bed represent? It was his past. It was the condition that Jesus was now going to change for him. You see, for 38 years, this man has been lying on this little pad. <laughs> he'd been lying on it, he'd been sweating on it, he'd been soiling it, he'd excreted on it, he'd defecated on it. It was absolutely sodden with the very disease that this man had. It was putrid, all right? Now, Jesus is going to heal him of it. In exactly the same way that the moment that you and I became Christians, we were healed of that putridness of our past, our sin. It was forgiven. It was gone. It was wiped out. But what Jesus wanted this man to realise was that if Jesus healed him of the disease, that he was totally free of it and that it wouldn't affect him again. And so therefore, Jesus wanted the man to realise that by touching his bed now that he was healed. So the man has been healed, he's got up off of his bed and Jesus said, right, there's your past, that bed, there it is, I want you to pick it up. I want you to touch it, I want you to hold it, I want you to realise that it can't hurt you anymore because I've dealt with it, because I've healed you. Can you see the point? Now there comes a time for each one of us as we follow the Lord, where having been healed, having been born again, forgiven our sins. There comes a time when that putrid mattress of our past that's lying there, that haunts us, that we fear. There comes a time when Jesus is saying, look, for heaven's sake, will you pick it up because it can't hurt you? I've dealt with it. It's gone. Touching that bed will not reinfect you. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, come to terms with that past history and come to terms with it by looking it right in the eye, touching it and realising that it is completely and utterly dealt with by Jesus. Can you see? We've got to pick up the beds of our past, as it were, and realise that it cannot hurt us anymore. My past is safe because it's covered by God's grace. It's repented of, it's forgiven. But for many years, I kept running away from it because I thought it was going to catch up with me. Well, it never did. Why not? Because it was gone. And, and the way that kind of, you know, so lot I think of it is that there came a day when I stopped running. I turned round on the spot and there was my past coming at me at a great rate of knots because it had been chasing me for so many years. And oh boy, we were going fast. I suddenly stop, I turn round and there coming at me like a freight train is the past I've been running from. And the moment it hit me, it just vanished. It was a ghost. It wasn't there. It was deception. There was nothing to fear. It was simply Satan keeping me on the run by deceiving me into thinking that my past somehow wasn't properly dealt with. And it was. Because Jesus dealt with it on the cross. And even in the years that I wasn't a Christian, even in the years when I was in willful rebellion against him as an unbeliever, even in those years, Jesus was involved in my life, dealing with the mess I was making even then, even though I wasn't following him. And that is the same for each one of us. Why? Because he chose us from before our mother's womb. So therefore, what we've got to see 
<coughs> is that our past, your past, my past, is actually there to prepare us for the future. That is what your past as a Christian is for, to prepare you for the future. Just as Elijah coming from Tishbe in Gilead, that perfectly fitted him, as we're going to see, for the work God had called him to do. So therefore, rather than being held back by our past, we need to embrace it and realise that not only can it not hurt us, it was actually God's preparation in our lives, preparing us firstly that we might become Christians, and secondly, now we are Christians, preparing us for the work the service, the ministry that he's called each one of us to. So we've got to make our past our friend, not our enemy. The sting has been taken out of it by the grace of God. And so the thing is that our, it seems to me you can have two types of past, can't you? <coughs> you can have a boring, humdrum, insignificant and ordinary past, right? Or you can have a notorious and vile past. You see what I mean by that? There are two types of history you can have under your belt. Now, the thing is, God brought us out of that past, whichever one is yours, he brought us out of it because he was working in us in it, all right? Therefore, we must not be fearful of it, we mustn't be discouraged by it. We must face our past, whatever it was, we must accept it, and then having accepted it, then we can forget it and move on. And one of the reasons that often Christians have a job that say they've sinned and they confess it, the Bible says you confess your sin, God forgives it, it's gone. One of the reasons that we have a job with this forgiving ourselves, you know, we carry on feeling guilty and we carry it with us. Jesus has taken it away, but we hang on to it, is because of this not facing up to the fact that our past is completely under the blood of Jesus. And when Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he said, even as a believer, even as a mature apostle in the Lord, Paul says, every day I forget what lies behind and I press on to the future. And it's a lesson we've got to learn, to let go of yesterday, or 25 years ago. But believe you me, until you've let go of your history before you were a Christian, you'll never be able to let go of sins as you confess them before the Lord. Can you see, the guilt of it will drag you down and Satan will be able to use it to discourage you, get you in despair, etc, etc. Now, I just want to put a special word in uh, here for those who would come into the category of uh, the kind of the boring, humdrum, insignificant and ordinary past, is it? And the reason I want to put a special word in about that is because that's where most of us are. <laughs> the average person does, after all, have a very uh, boring, humdrum, insignificant and ordinary history. The vast majority of human beings always have, and the vast majority of them always will. I mean, you tend to get that with the very notorious, vile, you know, people who are really the, you know, what what society will call the scum of the earth? <laughs> okay, the Lord wouldn't call them that. But the people with, who get converted out of the background of the scum of the earth and they've got a notorious and vile history, uh, you often find sometimes for them it's easier because they're so overwhelmed with their sense of forgiveness. Uh, but often the people who have the problems most uh, are the people in the majority, just with a boring, ordinary, insignificant past. And of course the, the way it comes out is this, it's, it's kind of, it's the feeling God can't use me, my life has always been so ordinary. My life has always been so boring. 
I'm so average. <laughs> you see what I mean? And this feeling that because my life has always been insignificant, how on earth can God use me? Now that is rubbish. It's rubbish. You couldn't have got a more insignificant past than Elijah. Tishbe? Tishbe? Where, where's Tishbe? I mean, it's wiped off the map. It's only the fact that it's mentioned in the Bible that we know it ever existed. A more insignificant background you could not have got to Elijah. And I mean, as soon as we look back at our past and say, God can't use me because of my past, for whatever reason, your past is one of the reasons that God can use you. Can you see? Because it's God working throughout our past that is preparing us now in the present for the future. And uh, I mean, the way God uses us doesn't have to be dramatic. For most Christians, it isn't dramatic. The real being used by God in the Bible is our daily lives. Loving and serving those around us. I mean, the dramatic stuff is all quite secondary. I've said it before, if we take care of the pennies, the pounds will take care of themselves. If we take care of being faithful in the little things, the ordinary things, the nitty-gritty, humdrum, boring things, then the Lord will take care of any kind of, you know, sort of like dramatic stuff that he wants to do through us. And he might want to do dramatic things through us, he might not, it doesn't matter. The question is, we've got to be available for God to use us. And it is our history, our past, that God has partly used to prepare it. Uh, let me just sort of say that in, in talking about our past and stuff like that, beware of testimony books and meetings. Now, I say beware, I don't discount them totally, alright, but there's a great danger in all this testimony stuff, you know, like you get the books, you know, like how people became Christians and stuff like that. And remember that by definition, um, if a publisher wants to be able to sell a Christian book about someone who's got converted, then by definition it's got to be a dramatic conversion. Now that's, that's fair enough, I have no argument with that. But the danger is that other Christians who read all this stuff can kind of end up thinking that it's the dramatic stuff that is the normal and the usual. And then they look back at their rather quieter conversion they think, oh there's something wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with how you got converted at all. You see, some people get converted very dramatically, others get converted very, very quietly. But the great danger is, it's all the dramatic stuff that you get in the books and the meetings, isn't it? And, uh, you know, the same if you get a book written uh, by someone to, you know, like they got converted 20 years ago, and they're writing a testimony book of their Christian lives up to the present day. And of course, what they've done is they've packed 20 years of the most dramatic things God's ever done for them into a little book that takes two hours to read. So that creates the impression that the last 20 years of their lives have been jam-packed with dramatic miracles. It certainly hasn't. There might be 15 or 20. Well, immediately we're down to one a year. <laughs> is it? That's not many, is it? But these books give you the impression that it's one every day before breakfast. You see, so we just need to, you know, to be careful about that. We must ever, never, ever feel shortchanged or cheated because of our history. Our history is the one that God has given us, and each one of us, our history, was the one that was very best suited to us, alright? Tremendously important. And let me say as well that on many of these testimonies that you hear on the Christian scene, a lot of them, some I know for a fact, and many more, I am pretty sure, are by and large a mixture of wishful thinking, exaggeration, plus the gift of the gab thrown in for good luck. Do you see what I mean? 
there's been many a testimony that I've heard when you pare it down and get to the bare bones what they've made of it the end result in the way it's described and spoken of is actually far bigger than life than it actually was when it happened there's always that great danger there okay so then but the main point here about the past is this your past is no accident whether it was your past before you got converted or your past since you got converted it was no accident God was in it and for a purpose too remember what we saw Jeremiah and Paul that they were set aside from their mother's womb and it was their history from the moment they got born right up to when God started to use them that was the preparation that God had working in their lives for the task that he wanted them to perform and that applies to each one of us as well might not be a dramatic task for some it might be for others it probably isn't but remember the most important thing in the world is simply each one of us in our place living the Christian life day by day that is the most powerful witness that there is and what this tells us is quite simply this when God wants something done he makes a baby be born you think when God wants something done a baby is born to eventually do it now ultimately we saw that in Jesus didn't we ultimately but it was true of Jeremiah it was true of Paul and here's the point it's true of you and it's true of me each one of you have been born because God's got work for you to do and your history since the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb is the preparation for that work that God's got for you so why am I here why are you here now you know your life is about one thing each one of you have a task throughout your life that only you can perform I have a task that only I can perform or the law through us obviously now the point is you won't fulfill mine I won't fulfill yours you were born you I was born me now isn't that incredible and following the Lord is outworking that task and fulfilling that ministry whatever it is that he's called each one of us to so that his kingdom can be furthered now what an incredible incentive to keep faithful to the Lord knowing that if we fall away we've blown it oh yeah we're going to heaven but what about our task that will be unfinished what a tragedy what a great incentive to stick in there with the Lord so then we've seen <coughs> that Elijah came from Tishbe in Gilead and uh, that like him our past is in God's hands and our pasts are part of the preparation that God has done in our lives for the future that he's called us to right let's read the second half of 1 Kings 17 verse 1 your fingers should be in it so we've seen that he comes from Tishbe in Gilead <coughs> and we read he said to Ahab now look what he said to Ahab as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word now my goodness Elijah pops on the scene for the first time how does he do it he does it via a confrontation 
with the most wicked king Israel had ever had. We will, as we go through this, see that Ahab thought nothing about murdering people. He couldn't have given a monkeys about human life. He was a butcher. And here, Ahab goes straight to him for confrontation. Now, notice Elijah had been led to do this. He didn't just think, oh, yes, I think it, I'm outraged. What a terrible king. Yes, I am going to have a confrontation with him in the name of the Lord. No, it's not like that. Elijah is a prophet. He's doing this because he had been led by God to do it. But the main point I want you to notice isn't that he had been led by God to do it. <laughs> it's that he actually did it. That God had led him to do this, but that Elijah did it. Ahab, this wicked, evil man, who was the second most powerful human being in Israel. Now, why do I say the second most powerful human being in Israel? You'll find out why when we move on in a few studies time to find out about his wife who was married to. And we're going to see who the real power in Israel was. It wasn't the king. Israel, well, I mean, Ahab was the head of him, his house. But as we're going to see, Jezebel, his wife, was the neck that turned the head. And uh, we'll get onto that later. But here's the point that here Elijah is being led by God straight up to King Ahab and he's actually challenging him in the name of the Lord. Now can you see Elijah here is not suffering from the fear of man. He is not suffering here from the fear of man. He is here free to obey God. Now I mean when it comes to obeying God there are two categories of things that you'll be led to do. There'll be the category of God leading, to, you know, leading you to do things which are okay by you. Then there's the category of God leading you to do things which you really do not want to do. And I put it to you that challenging Ahab comes firmly in the latter category. But nevertheless, Elijah was not here suffering from the fear of man. He was free to obey God. Keep your fingers in 1 Kings 17, but now go to Proverbs. If you go through to the end, keep going through to the end of the Bible, Chronicles, Nehemiah, Job, Psalms, and then after Psalms you get Proverbs. <coughs> and if you find chapter 29, Proverbs chapter 29, And verse 25, and we'll see here the secret, as it were, of Elijah's success. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man is a snare, and a snare is a trap. If you get caught in a trap, you're finished. The fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, is that a wonderful thing? Elijah was realizing here well, I mean, did he have fear of Ahab? Of course he did. He was a human being. But he knew full well that if he acted according to his fear of Ahab, he would not be free to act on the leading of the Lord. And so he turned away from his fear of man, and he said, I'm going to go with the Lord, because if I trust the Lord, I'm going to be safe. Do you see? And that's what Elijah did. Go to Philippians in the New Testament. Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi, <coughs> chapter 1, 
and in verse 14 Paul says most, now this is in persecution most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear now isn't that a wonderful thing? to really be moment by moment close to the Lord is the deliverance from the trap of the fear of man and believe me if you give in to the fear of man that really is bad news and this is something overcoming fear of man really something that we need God's grace for I would say without hesitation that personally this is for me has been one of the most for me terrible struggles I've had in the Christian life I've had lots of really terrible struggles and this is up there in the major league uh, that, that I've really had such a battle with the fear of man I mean some people tend to have it more than others but I mean by God's grace he's dealing with it in me uh, I see improvement as the years go by but uh, I mean some people are kind of like when it comes to other people are natural cowards and, and I find myself that, 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 that for me confrontation or unpleasantness with people is one of the things that I dislike most in life my natural temperament is rather more sitting on the fence look everybody's right let's just love each other that is my natural inclination that is me in the natural but I've learned that God does not like that because everyone is not right and anyone who lives his life saying everyone is right is a fool and, and I, I want to keep being set free from my foolishness can you see what I mean and uh, you know I, I mean it's kind of you know but what I've, I've found out is that if, if as a result of obeying what the Lord is saying if that means that as a consequence of obedience to the Lord that other people are going to get upset with me and be horrible to me and stuff like that yeah I'll sometimes go to bed shaking like a leaf feeling sick but I've decided so be it the truth is the truth is the truth and if Jesus couldn't get by without virtually upsetting everyone he ever met why should we expect that we can? can you see what I mean? and this fear of man really is a snare that we must be free of now let me say there immediately though that what I am not talking about is sadly people who do naturally enjoy upsetting people when I talk about we must be free of the fear of man alright I'm not saying you know sort of like you know if for, for, for my mind if a Christian if someone enjoys upsetting people that is a sin in their life and when someone who enjoys upsetting people upsets people that's not of the Lord uh, you know I'm, I mean a, a mature believer will always hate people being upset will never be a joy to him he'll be prepared for it um, I'm not saying either being like a chieftain tank in a glassworks you know sort of like oh right Beresford has told us we mustn't be afraid of people we've got to be willing to confront them and bang out there confronting everyone you can in the most obnoxious and provocative way that you can think of that is not what I am talking about at all neither am I talking about being willing to confront people as an excuse for getting at the people you don't like or if there are people in the fellowship you think they're out of order I'm going to have them and so you dress on brother the Lord wants me to correct you you know and, and it's merely trying to you know I'm not talking about anything like that at all Paul says insofar as it depends upon you live peaceably with all and that's that's right 
insofar as it depends upon you. But what we've got to realise is that there are times when faithfulness to the Lord means that people, as a consequence, are going to get upset. What we're seeing here is that even when that was the case, Elijah went with what the Lord was saying. He didn't let what other people thought prevent him. Now there is an encouragement here, as we're going to see in later chapters, but we're going to see later on. Here we have Elijah going up to Ahab the king. What we're going to discover later on is that although Elijah wasn't frightened of Ahab, or he was able to be in the Lord, in the spirit, in regards to Ahab, and overcome fear of man, Elijah was terrified of Jezebel, and he ran away from her. Alright? So there's an encouragement. Elijah was a human being like us. When he was confronted with Ahab, Elijah was able to overcome his fear of man. When he was confronted with Jezebel, we're going to see that he, he, he bottled it totally, and he ran away and he hid in a cave. <laughs> and God had to send an angel to get him out of this cave because he was so frightened of Jezebel. You know, so I mean, there were times when Elijah was in the Lord in regards to things. There were times when he bottled out and his sinful nature took over. And, uh, you know, last week, didn't we? We just saw a quick reference to the fact that Moses, because he was so frightened to do public speaking, asked God to let Aaron hold his hand, didn't we? And so God let Aaron do the speaking instead of Moses. I mean, these, these men were dust. The same as we are. They were mere dust. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging, because I'm dust. And I'll tell you, if when I opened this book, and read through the history in the Bible of God's dealings with his people. If I found that all them were kind of up there and that I was down here, I mean, what, what encouragement would that be? I mean, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? They were dust. I am dust. I fail, they fail. But in these men's lives, I see how God dealt with them, and I see how, through their willingness to be dealt with, God did things through them that amaze me. Now, if he can do it in them, he can do it in me. He can he can do it in you. But it's going to be whether or not we're willing, like Elijah, to really be dealt with by God. And uh, now, the real answer to the fear of man, wherever we come across it, and, you know, I mean, as I say, there have been more occasions than I can tell you where I've probably learned in some ways you, you kind of get a, a bit of a control over your body. There are times when I will actually shake with fear. <laughs> I mean, that's me. I mean, I can quiver like a round tree's jelly any day. It's weird. But a lot of the time, you actually manage to control your body. So you might not look terrified, but there have been times when, you know, I've, I've kind of had to speak with people, and inside I have been like a round tree's jelly. But it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Can you see? And the real answer to the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. If you fear the Lord, you will overcome your fear of man and do the right thing regardless. But if you fear man and think that what other people think is more important than what God thinks, then you'll never fear God and you'll just end up kowtowing to other people. Uh, go back to Proverbs and find chapter 28 this time. <coughs> right at the end of Proverbs, chapter 28. Hmm. Proverbs 28 and verse 1. Now look at this. I love this. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, can you see what that's saying? If you're right with God, courage will be there for you when you need it. But if you're not right with God, you'll find that it's you doing the runner. 
Not being right with God brings a feeling of paranoia. Oh, they're after me, and so you're frightened and you run. So the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. I'll tell you why the righteous are as bold as a lion, because Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Can you see? Now, being bold as a lion doesn't mean that you do not have feelings of fear. One thing we can know is absolutely true. I mean, say in a situation of war or something like this, or say a policeman or a fireman doing, you know, incredibly dangerous saving people's lives or whatever. Now then, the person who, for instance, jumps out of an aeroplane, goes behind enemy lines, blows up guns and completes his mission, all right? The soldier who does that, who isn't feeling sick with fear, is not a good soldier, he's a psychopath. He is not a brave man. He's a stupid man. A brave man is someone who overcomes their fear and does it anyway because it's right. You see the point? If you felt no fear, that would not make you brave. That would make you stupid. I mean, can you imagine, say, if you were um, you know, a policeman or something like that, and suddenly you were, you know, say you walked into a shop and there's a gunman with a gun and, and, and he's kind of like holding everyone in the shop up and there you, you, you've got to try and overcome that situation. Now then, the policeman who stands in there and is not frightened is a fool. Can you see? And if he, him overcoming the situation, if it's a big joke to him, that doesn't make him a coward, uh, I mean a brave man. The brave policeman is the one who, although he's petrified, does his duty anyway, even at the expense of his own life. Now, the point is, what I'm trying to say is, a brave man is not someone who doesn't feel fear. The brave man is someone who knows the fear, but will overcome it, because God requires something of him. And that is why, in the Old Testament, well, in the Bible, you get the phrase, fear not, 365 times. One for every day of the year. It's not a sin to be frightened. It's a sin when your fear prevents you from doing what God wants. And that's, that's tremendously important. So, uh, although it doesn't matter that at times I shake like a jelly, it would matter though if I bottled out of what I knew to be right just because I'm frightened of the consequences with other people. Can you see? That's, that's important. Okay, now let's, let's see here what Elijah actually says to Ahab. Because this is the point of his visit, okay? Now, there's four parts, there's this sentence that Elijah says to Ahab, and there are four parts to this sentence, and uh, we can learn an awful lot from it. The first thing he says is, as the Lord God of Israel lives. Now that was Elijah's way of saying, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Now, Elijah's first recorded words are, as the Lord God of Israel lives. Do you remember last week what we saw about Elijah's name? It means the Lord is God. That was Elijah's passion. That is what Elijah was all about. It was the one purpose in his life. To declare and to demonstrate by his life that the Lord God of Israel was the only real true God and that Baal was a deception and a false god. That was the passion of his life. Now, do you remember what we saw in Galatians 1.15 when Paul talks about how God set him aside 
from his mother's womb and called him. What was it for? He said, that he might reveal his son in me. That was the purpose of Paul's life. It was the purpose of Elijah's life. Now then, earlier on, I spoke about how our history is preparation for the task that each one of us has. I'll now tell you what that task is. It's the same for you, as it is for me, as it is for anyone who's a Christian. And it's this. Our task is to reveal Jesus, the Lord God, through our lives. That is the purpose of our lives as disciples. The purpose of you being born again was because the Lord loved you and wanted to save you. But that's settled, you're born again, you're going to heaven. Your purpose now is that God can reveal Jesus in you. It was true of Elijah, it was true of Paul, and it's true of us. The revealing of Jesus through our lives. Now that is why <coughs> talk isn't enough, not as Christians. Anyone can spout. We can all spout. We can all talk. But when it comes to being a disciple, talk is not enough. What's needed is people around us seeing that we are different. Not just that we talk different, because as far as they're concerned, they might think, well, he talks Christian. Well, they talk conservative. Uh, they talk occult. Uh, they talk Marxist. That's no good. That's merely, oh, well, their opinion is as a Christian. That's no good at all. People have got to see that we're different and that the only explanation for the difference in our lives is that God is doing it in us. You see? We haven't been called to live possible lives. The Christian life, being a disciple, is not possible. It's impossible. It cannot be done by a human being in their own strength. Why not? What well, I'll tell you, and I'm not talking about miracles now, because discipleship is living a life of love, service, and self-denial. And by self-denial, I don't mean giving up this for Jesus or giving up that for Jesus. I don't mean denying yourself things which are wrong. I mean denying ourselves. That's what self-denial is. Not denying yourself things, but denying yourself. Do you remember last week, I reminded you about that prophecy we had about a year ago, when God said, say no to yourselves, and you say yes to me. And unbelievers are supposed to look on, and as they get to know us, they look at our lives and they say, it is impossible to live like that, but my goodness, they are. There's only one explanation. This God they talk about is doing it in their lives. Can you see? So, you've got the talk. Yes, that's important. We talk Christian. But the life to back it up, that is when God's power really comes in to the lives of other people. So, can you see? That is what Elijah is all about. His first words, it's what his name means. The Lord is God. Revealing God, that's what his name means. His very first words are, as the Lord God of Israel lives. Can you see? That was the passion, the purpose of his life. The same for you and I. God wants to reveal himself through us. Now then, the second thing, he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives. Now look at this. Before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. I can almost see him standing in front of, Eli of Ahab, and as he's saying this, he's poking his chest. 
before whom I stand. Because he wants to make sure that Ahab knows who he's coming up against here. He's not coming up against Elijah. He's coming up against the Lord God. And oh boy, does Ahab realise this, as we'll see in a few studies' time. Now, this is Elijah speaking as the servant who stands before his master continuously waiting for instructions so that he can carry them out. Can you see? Before whom I stand. This is Elijah standing to attention before the Lord God of Israel awaiting instructions. And let me say as well that this is a statement that could only be made by someone who really knew his God and someone who really had a significant personal relationship. I mean, yeah, anyone can say it, before whom I stand. It's only words, isn't it? It's only waffle. But as we're going to see, Elijah was no hypocrite. Elijah was no superficial, wordy, wordy, wordy Christian or believer. Elijah was a man of deep sincerity. This was reality to him. Here was a declaration by someone who knew the Lord and was in a deep and significant personal relationship with him. And let me say, you can know the Lord in regards to that you've met him, you've been born again. But that's not necessarily knowing the Lord, is it? That's not necessarily having a deep, significant personal relationship with him, is it? Now, I want to draw a distinction here. It's a subtle one, but I hope that you can all see it. I'm sure you will. Elijah was a man who had personal experience with God, rather than merely someone who had experiences of God. I'll say that again. Elijah was a man who had had personal experience with God, rather than someone who had merely had experiences of God. Now can you see the difference here? There was depth and character in Elijah, in his discipleship, rather than the mere superficiality of spiritual experiences. Now, I'm not running spiritual experiences down, alright? Because spiritual experiences are right and proper. But we must be careful not to think that the presence of the latter, spiritual experiences, means that the former is present as well, i.e. spiritual experience. The two are completely different. See, in the early years of being a Christian, very often, spiritual experiences are frequent. I mean, that's great. That, that's often the way, you know, I mean, when I became a Christian, uh, in the early years, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating to say I was having spiritual experiences all over the place. But eventually they stopped. Because I stopped being a baby Christian. And I found that it was more when the spiritual experiences stopped that I started to get experience with God. Can you see? There's a subtle difference there, alright? But, coming into experience with God in regards to a personal relationship with Him takes a long time. It's a question of maturity. And even when you've been following the Lord for 50 years, you're still only scratching the surface. And this is so relevant for us to understand today in, in the age of the charismatic movement. You've got Christians frothing and bubbling their charismatic way all over the place. 
spiritual experiences here, spiritual experiences there. You know, kind of like, you know, there's a meeting every night in the week somewhere where you can go and get a spiritual experience. Ladies and gentlemen, get your spiritual experiences here. <laughs> Is he? And you go along for these knees up meetings and you go forward and they lay hands on you and you fall on the floor and stuff like that. And if you don't, they push harder. Can you see? And that is people going, rather like drug addicts, going for their fix. That's what I mean by merely experiences with God. Now, there are so many who are into that. But question, where's the depth? Where's the fruit? Where is the character of Jesus. Because I have known believers who have been on that scene for 20 years and they are no more mature now than they were then. And that is a tragedy. They have no more understanding of the Word of God now than when they started. They have no grace or sorrow for sin now than when they started. Can you see, we need depth and experience. And that is why there is so much stupidity on the Christian scene today. This is why there is so much unbiblical teaching around, okay? It's because people are living in a mentality of experiences of God without the developing of the maturity and depth in the Lord and character that only experience with God can really bring about. Go, go to Romans, see something that Paul says in Romans. Romans chapter 5 show you the difference between the, the superficial believer and the real disciple, the man like Elijah. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 3, look what Paul says. He's, he's talked in chapter 1 and 2 about being justified, that we're born again, that we're saved. But in verse 3 he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Now, can you see that? Here we're talking depth. Here we're talking about not just someone who kind of living on the froth and bubble of the last time they subjectively felt God move. We're now talking about believers who have grown out of that. Yet the spiritual experiences will still come and go. There's nothing wrong with them. If, if the Lord decides to allow us to really subjectively feel him. That is brilliant. That is superb. But here Paul's talking about moving into something so much more deeper than that. And it's about the suffering in following Jesus which produces endurance, produces maturity, patience, character. And the sad thing is, a lot of the stuff that God does in the lives of believers to bring this about i.e. the suffering that will produce the endurance, which will produce the character. Sadly, in the charismatic movement, an awful lot of it is uh, kind of believed to be Satan attacking, and so you pray it away. It's, it's your thoughts about, oh, this is Satan attacking you, brother, let's pray and come against the devil. When it's the chastening hand of God coming to sort you out. Can you see? I mean, you, you know, being a prayer, and you say, oh dear, it's terrible, what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And all the Christians, they want to lay hands on you. They say, lay hands on you, and they pray against this satanic attack. When what's happening is God laying his hand, his hand on you, the other end. Can you see? And it's a sad mentality, alright. And therefore, so much of what God does in the lives of his children, that are meant to mature them, it doesn't take any effect, because the believers end up thinking, oh no, this is the devil coming against me. Oh, you know, and it's so sad, therefore, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take in them. And my goodness, we're going to see 
the right old tough time that Elijah is yet to face the endurance that he learned because of the suffering that he went through but my goodness we're going to see as well how his character just really develops more and more into that of the life of the Lord God living through him now then the third thing he said is there shall neither be dew nor rain these years he says Ahab there's going to be a doubt, drought there is going to be neither dew nor rain these years now why is he saying that <coughs> this is Elijah's faith now what do I mean by that two things firstly Elijah has faith for God's judgment to fall on his people <laughs> Elijah is believing for the judgment of God to fall upon God's people because of their rebellion uh, but that's not very Christian is it is it that's not that's, 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 that's not being positive. We're supposed to be positive, not negative. That's not very Christian, is it? Well, it might not be. Well, it is. might not be Christian according to the teaching you get today, but Elijah here is in faith for the judgment of God to fall upon his people. Now, what you'll find on the Christian scene today is be positive, not negative. Right, bear that in mind. Go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. <coughs> Revelation chapter 2 and we're going to see something that Jesus said to a church in New Testament times via a letter that he dictated to John the Apostle and in Revelation chapter 2 this is a letter written from Jesus to the Ephesian church the same Ephesian church that Paul wrote his epistles to but some years later, alright, quite a long time later, probably about 20, 30 years later, alright? Now then, in verse 5, look what Jesus says. Remember then from what you have fallen. Now this is talking to a church of Christians. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what was the lampstand? What did that signify? The presence of Jesus in their midst. So when Jesus says here, um, I will come and remove the lampstand, he's saying, if you as a church do not repent and do not get right with me, I'm going to leave your church. Is he? I mean, he hasn't left the individuals, no, Jesus is with us forever, but he will leave a church. And there you have a group of Christians in one of the other letters, the Laodicean church. He says, behold, I stand on the door and knock. Now this is a church. And here's a church, they're getting together. I don't know, there might have been a few hundred of them, I don't know. They're all getting together in Laodicea and they're having their prayer evening. They say, oh Lord, where two or three are gathered in your name. Oh Lord, thank you, thank you that you're here. Where's Jesus? He says, I'm outside. He says, I'm not in the midst of you. I'm outside knocking to see if you'll let me in. You see, pushed him out, a church that had pushed Jesus out. Because, of course, to be gathered in his name means to be gathered under his authority. And a group of Christians gathering together in the name of Jesus, but without actually living under the authority of the Bible, they're kidding themselves. Jesus is outside knocking on the door saying, are you ready to let me in yet, please? So, therefore, can we see, Elijah was in faith for God's judgment to fall upon Israel. Go to Deuteronomy 11. Because, why? A drought. 
why a drought? I mean, why wasn't he praying that um, you know a load of English football hooligans would attack them? I mean, that that would have been a judgment, wouldn't it? Can you imagine a whole load of English football hooligans descending on Israel? Dear, oh dear. No, but why is it a drought? Well, in Deuteronomy 11, we're going to read from verse 13. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. <coughs> now, look at this. This is God speaking through Moses to the people. If you will obey my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you grass in the fields. You see, that results from the rain, doesn't it? He will give you grass in your fields for the cattle, and you shall eat and be full. But take heed, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, and the anger of the Lord is kindled against you, and he shut up the heavens, so that there be no rain, and the land yield no fruit, and you perish quickly of the good land which the Lord your God gives you. So why is Elijah saying this to Ahab? Because he believes the Bible. He's looked up in the scriptures, and he's seen that God has promised to bring judgment on Israel if Israel turns to other gods, and that that judgment will be a drought. And what has Elijah done? He says, Lord, this is your word. I claim it. Do it, Lord. Do it. This is what your word says. Now do it, Lord. Bring your judgment to bear so that these people can repent and get right with you. So, what is faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Elijah is acting on the word of God. So, therefore, the Lord had led him and said, Yeah, Elijah, this is exactly what I'm going to do. You go and tell Ahab. All right? Now then, what do we notice about Elijah here? Elijah was not willing to turn a blind eye to the true condition of God's people. He was not willing. He looked at the people of God and he would not turn a blind eye to it. He said, unfaithfulness, and I'm not going to call it anything else. I am not going to be dishonest. You have forsaken the Lord and this is unfaithfulness. Now, I'll tell you the sad truth about the Church of Jesus Christ today. There are many, many Christians who know the state of the Church, and do you know what they're doing? They're turning a blind eye to it. They are turning a blind eye to it. Well, Jesus isn't. And Jesus wants believers who will act. So here, Elijah is trusting fully in the revealed Word of God. That is what faith is. And so he has been praying, Lord, send the drought. And in his praying, in his time before the Lord about this, the Lord has said, yes, I, Elijah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I want you now to go and tell Ahab that it is what I'm going to do. So he goes to Ahab, the leader of God's people, and says, God's judgment is coming upon you. There's going to be a drought. Now, then, let me say, if, if this is a bit negative for you, uh, a, not very charismatic, um, then tough. But for many Christians it is. You can't say things like this. It's not loving. Well, you tell God he's not loving. Don't tell me. <laughs> this is what God is doing. Go back to Jeremiah. We've seen Jeremiah, haven't we, in that how God chose him from his mother's womb. Let's see something else about Jeremiah. <coughs> Let's find out whether God's a positive thinking charismatic, shall we? <laughs> Jeremiah, the first chapter. Well, let's read from verse 9. 
Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Right, what for? Love them to death? Just love them? Look at this. To pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overflow overthrow and then to build and to plant now can you see the craziness of all this positive thinking you mustn't ever be negative if it's negative it's of the devil well the simple truth is this God's work is very often negative before it can be positive think of it say the very good news of salvation we preach the good news of salvation is the bad news that you're going to the lake of fire and it's only when the bad news bit of it has sunk in and you repent that the good news bit comes into play. Can you see what I mean? It's got to be negative before it can be positive or the whole thing is a nonsense. It's a nonsense. The only, if someone's going to say, never say anything negative, that could mean one thing. They believe that God is absolutely happy with the way everything is. Well, he's not. He is not. There were many occasions when he wasn't happy with the churches in the New Testament. And so he wrote letters through people like Paul the Apostle, Peter and James, and all over them was repent, repent, sort yourselves out. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, you see? So the Lord is often negative before it's positive. Now God wants to do a Jeremiah in the church today. And he wants to do this, he wants to pluck up and break down the whole unbiblical edifice of the so-called Christian church in this country. He wants to destroy and overthrow the authority of man's ideas which go against his revealed word, even amongst believers. Because that's why the whole edifice of the Christian church today is wrong. Because it's built on the ideas of mere men, mere believers, rather than on the word of God. And then, with that done, then he wants to build and to plant his proper church in its place. That's what God wants to do. And remember what Jesus said, I will build my church. He's not interested in someone else's church. <laughs> he might knock on the door for a while and say, you're going to let me in. But he wants to build his church. And therefore, it's got to be his way. And this is why our ongoing prayer as a church is that God will both deal with us as a church and that he'll deal with other churches too. That God will make sure that we are in line. And we pray that he will make sure that other churches are in line as well. And let's never think that God won't get tough with his people. Because God will get tough with his people. I know full well how tough God will get with me. We have seen in the history of this church how tough God is prepared to get with certain people. And each one of us can sit here and say, oh boy, did God get tough with me over that? And I say this, praise his name that he gets tough with us. If he didn't, how would we ever be rescued from the results of the sin of our hearts? So God will get tough with his people and here through Ahab we see him doing it there. And then the last thing that Elijah said, he said, look, there'll be neither dew nor rain these years. But look at this, except by my word. Now just picture, he's standing there in front of Ahab, he's kind of poking him on the shoulder. And he says, now look Ahab, 
there's not going to be any rain, there's going to be a drought. Are you catching this, Ahab? And there's not going to be any rain until I say so, chummy. Are you getting me? Because the Lord has sent me. Are you getting the idea of Elijah here? And he's saying the drought will carry on until I say it's going to stop. Now, this is incredible. Can you see there the most amazing oneness and partnership that Elijah was in with God? What a partnership! That Elijah says, look, there's going to be a drought, and I'm telling you, and it's going to go on for a few years, but it will come to an end when I say so. The Lord will tip me the nod, Ahab, and I'll let you know. What an incredible partnership with God. Look at the authority <coughs> here that Elijah was moving in. It's incredible. But you see, Elijah here is God's mouthpiece. And the reason that he is moving in such authority here, as we're going to see, is because he is in submission to the Lord. Because he is under authority, and because he is doing this and saying this, because God has told him to, because of that, he therefore is moving in the delegated authority of God. So because he was under God's authority, he was able to move in authority over Ahab, even though Ahab, Ahab was the king of Israel, and Elijah a mere pleb, and from Tishbe at that. It's God moving through him. This isn't just Ahab being foolhardy. No, this isn't Elijah being foolhardy. Oh, I'll go and sort Ahab out. No, this is a man moving at the leading of God. But my goodness, can you see the incredible implications here about what it is that God is wanting to do in his people today? God wants a biblical church. And as we're going to see, he wants loads and loads of Elijahs popping up all over the place. Taking a pop here and a pop there. Because God wants to change the situation that God's people are in. And he wants to sort the mess out. And he wants to see the real and the true and the proper church really being built. In the same way that God, through Elijah, wanted to act into the mess that Israel was in here. And bring them out of that mess. So, my goodness, Elijah has come onto the scene, bang, just like that. Straight up to the king of Israel, and not just that, the most wicked and murderous king that they'd ever had. And Elijah is straight up to him, and what a statement. He says, excuse me, king, there's going to be a doubt, drought. God is going to deal with you, and God is going to deal with the rest of his people. And, uh, my goodness, so here we're really seeing Elijah's ministry has begun. Or has it? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, come back next week and you'll find out. <laughs>